Hi again, everybody, moms and dads, boys and girls. You are listening to the 103rd episode of The Chatter on FM 98.3 KCRD and the mobile app everywhere on KCRD. And we begin in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Remember, Remember, O most gracious gracious Virgin Virgin Mary, Mary, that that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, protection, implored thy help, or sought sought thy intercession, intercession, was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've been trying to get Magdalene Grace Dean on the show for 102 episodes, and she made it here today, and we're going to talk to her right after you tell everybody. About, what they're doing about what they're doing on november 2nd yes i hope everyone is coming to the grand river center that night for our conference uh, with dr ray garendi you can listen to him at noon monday through friday here on kcrd mm-hmm. and he's a funny guy and his topic is laughter the sanity of the family and everybody needs to laugh a little bit so i'm hoping to see all of our listeners there that night it'll be a great night um, tickets are available at kcrd-fm.org, or you can call Tom at 563-231-3545. You see, there's a trend going on. Oh, what's that? Last seven, ten days here, people are calling up, can I get a table? Really? Yeah, they're bringing, and then now it's, how many are at a table? Is it eight or ten? And the answer is Yes. <laughs> <laughs> whatever whatever happens there. So. That's great because, you know, we, we have these conferences twice a year and they're really an opportunity to gather with like-minded people and that is good for the soul. Mm-hmm. So um, please join us that night on Thursday, November 2nd at the Grand River Center for Dr. Ray Garendi's talk on laughter, the sanity of the family. And I'm very excited because we are heading east, so to speak, with our guest tonight. Now, if you're a Dubuqueer, that's you a know whole, what that you oh, know what that's that means. A whole other deal going east. You know what that means going for Dubuqueers when uh, the bars here used to close at two a.m. But I think in East Dubuque they closed at four a.m. Yeah. So when it was getting close to the bars closing, people would talk about going east. I've heard. Of course, I never <laughs> participated at all. All right, Pinocchio. Yeah, but uh, going east meant heading to East Dubuque until those bars closed, and then getting a grew dog. Yes. At Mulgrew's. But they still have those, by the way. They do still have those. Do you ever get a craving you just want to go over and have a grew dog? No. But I have had a grew dog, and Mm -hmm. I actually, I did like it. But today we're going to head east. The light of the east. Different way. I'm trying to remember iconographer Magdalene. I came down to your shop over a year ago, and uh, you gave me the tour, but I'm trying to remember what was the impetus to come down here. I'm lost. Did I tell you what I said when I got there? Do you remember? Well, you you were invited to come in and take a look at right. uh, at what we did, and I think you got overwhelmed because it was. I was. So I was so much like a treasury of saintly um, inspiration that was really on every inch of every wall, and y- you just kept on saying oh my <laughs> well I, ca- I came for the tea and i stayed for the icons is about what happened yes 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 uh, because i love tea and my wife marianne loves tea and we needed some 
we had a gentleman over in Chicago that used to a wholesaler, and we used to get just boxes of tea from him, and and we've lost track of each other, and so we're out of tea, and I go down to see Magdalene, I call her up. Yeah, we have tea stopped out, and, and, and it's by appointment, because I'm thinking this is the craziest tea shop by <laughs> appointment. And I go in, and I get the tour, and it was nothing like what I had imagined. In fact, I think it was an afterthought. If it wasn't for you reminding me, Tom, you did want tea as I'm leaving. You did want tea. so It's easy to get distracted in your store because it's beautiful. It's a store unlike any other store in Dubuque or the Dubuque area. So tell us a little bit about who you are, and how you ended up in Dubuque. Well, um, I am a master iconographer. And for those of you who don't know, a master iconographer um, has to not only have received the blessing um, in the writing of icons, and that's usually done by a priest, but in my case it was done by not one but two bishops. Really? And it's a vocation, and it's a semi-monastic vocation. Um, So I did my study on the West Coast, And then uh, I entered into a fellowship finalizing my studying um, at the Getty Institute. And it was the first time that they received a a request for an independent scholar to come in and complete a period of research on uh, Byzantine iconography. And not only that, but I was going to turn that uh, research into a curriculum for teaching. And it had never been done in America before. And I approached them, and they um, not only welcomed me with open arms, but they did it within 24 hours, which is what I'm told it can take weeks for things to be juried and for ideas and concepts and different research um, uh, requests to be juried. But because my request coincided with a huge exhibition of icons being shipped over from Greece mm-hmm. and from Italy. The timing was perfect for them. So that concluded my masterful training. I already have a master in fine arts. I'm also a master herbalist and a master in the dance arts. And I taught liturgical dance arts for well over 15 years, was um, a master herbalist with a private practice for over 25 years, and then formalized my training of the herbology to go into uh, blending masterful teas, Mm -hmm. and that was another 10 years. So mixing with that and the Master in Fine Arts, um, I reached a point in my life where it was important for me to uh, take that and every ounce of my studying and now turn it over to God and to serve the church. Wow. And to do so, um, I was able to um, set up shop um, on the West Coast and then eventually made my way out here because I saw that there was a need uh, for this kind of teaching in this region. We have Catholic churches and seminaries, and um, we just have a need to uh, learn more about this complement to Western Catholicism, which is Eastern Catholicism, and that to uh, be able to complement the understanding that everyone already has in this area, um, iconography is probably the, the perfect fit to teach everybody about the East. So maybe our listeners don't realize, but the church, the Catholic Church is, is really bigger than we think. We think the Latin Catholic Church, the Roman Rite. Right. But there's over 20 different rites within the Catholic 
church, the broader Catholic church. And you've got the Western rites, which mostly is the Roman Latin rite. And then you have the Eastern rites, which um, are more based on a geography um, and how a liturgy developed there. So in the Ukraine or in Ukraine, um, the Byzantine developed their liturgy, still faithful to the teachings of the church. In Lebanon, the Maronites mm-hmm. developed that. In Egypt, I think it's the Coptic uh, Christians. So depending upon the locale, things developed a little differently based on the geography, but they're all still faithful to um, you know the Holy Father and the teaching magisterium of the church. So there's two lungs. I think it was John Paul II John Paul. that said... Um, the church needs to breathe with both lungs, the west lung and the eastern lung. And so what iconographer Magdalene is doing is bringing some of that eastern um, Catholicism to the area, which is awesome. I love it. That's great. What's the reception been like in Dubuque since you've been here? Well, I think a lot of people would just would walk in mainly for the tea. Sure. Keep in mind that we started the tea shop as a way to provide for the school and to support the school. I had the uh, skill and I had the talent and it was the perfect timing during COVID to put together a set of formulated teas that were not only delicious as a beverage but that were supportive uh, to to wellness. So um, people came in for the tea and then started to learn more and more about the iconography because I have it displayed everywhere. (laughs) <laughs> and and um, just in awe and curious, and um, but yet many, many Roman Catholics who have come in have actually heard of iconography. They've either seen um, some at museums or they've seen it uh, featured from time to time on EWTN. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. But they just didn't know that much about it because from the surface it just looks like another form of, of Catholic art. Mm-hmm. But um, lo and behold, as I start to teach each customer about the, um, the different process and the utilization of the icon, then they become very curious. And now many people are seeking us out for personal icons, icons for churches, and just uh, also um, students from the seminaries are learning, coming in. To I, w- I wonder if there are people that have icons and don't know they have them. It's very possible. I have many people who come in and, and bring something in that was handed down from their family members mm-hmm. over several decades or generations, or they've been gifted a piece of art. I had one lovely nun come in and bring in the most valuable icon in the most virtuosic style, true Byzantine icon that I put a value of three to $4,000 on. She found it in a lost and found waste bin area. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my. Wow. Wow. So when we talk about icons, since this is radio, I guess we should describe a picture of them. But they're usually on a block of wood. Is that correct? Yes. As opposed to a canvas. They're always, uh, they're always written and not painted. And the reason why I say written is because they are actual layered glazes of geometric shapes. And they are on wooden panels. And they're also um, decking the walls as frescoes in many of the ancient churches, both Roman and Eastern Catholic churches. Can you explain what a fresco is i i think most 
Catholics have heard that with the basilicas and the and the uh, chapels, but can you give a, a textbook definition of what a fresco is and how that is different than a, a painting? Yes, a fresco actually is uh, utilizes uh, wet lime plaster, and the painting has to be done very quickly while the plaster is wet. Much like what we're doing with iconography, the plaster is based in marble and some other uh, powders um, that are very... Uh, very ancient in origin. And then hand ground pigments are used to color the different shapes. So what happens through time is that those pigments being natural earth elements start to actually uh, embed into the wet plaster and become fused within the plaster and become permanent. So um, many of the earliest forms of Christian art were frescoes on the wall also, we find mosaics, which are little, uh, little tiny squares, usually a half an inch by a half an inch of uh, chipped glass, hand-blown glass that's colored and chipped. And this, this was brought to the highest art form in Rome um, um, you know, during the time of Christ and actually before the time of Christ. So that's another form that goes on the wall. And then ultimately you have the icon, which is then a wooden panel that has been produced in a similar way with natural pigments and 24 karat gold leaf. Wow. And those, um, those were written about um, as, well, they, they were written about as early as the first hundred years of Christ. And um, um, even when, uh, in the Eastern countries, when uh, Muhammad was coming through and actually visited some of these ancient um, Eastern Catholic churches, he annotated that he saw these icons hanging on the walls even back then. So they were uh, a most definite form of teaching uh, scripture and teaching the tradition of the church before the widely used um, printed Bible or Missal, because printing didn't come about until the 1500s. And so you call it writing an icon because it's like a prayer aid. It's like you read an icon. Yes, um, in, uh, on one level, but also um, you um, can actually pray and meditate through the, uh, through the icon in an intercession um, that is an example of a saint or a saint's life or the Virgin Mary. But the, the, the difference between the icon and a normal three-dimensional uh, devotional piece of art, mm. the icon is written in one or two dimensions as a maximum because it's, it, it's not a portrait, it's not a like-life rendition, and it's designed, um, it's, it, it has abbreviated text of the ancient Greek New Testament mm -hmm. on it. Mm -hmm. um, it has shapes that are dynamic in geometry that allow the eye to move deeper into the piece of art, um, certainly more than you would be looking at a normal piece of art or a three-dimensional piece of art or even a photograph or something that we see pixelated on the computer today. It actually contains um, uh, geometric um, shapes that move your, your eyes. And then ultimately, we're moving our heart deeper into the image, then past the image to God. And that, that's why we call it writing an icon and reading an icon. Um, and that's a very, very um, simplified understanding because mm -hmm. when we're learning uh, the the uh, actual um, process of icon writing, it can take years 
to understand this language. But I think it's important because I think as Roman Catholics, we see art that, like you say, is three-dimensional. It's, it, it ev- evokes emotions, right? We see a beautiful image of Our Lady, mm-hmm. the Sacred mm-hmm. Heart, and, and it evokes emotions. And it's an important distinction, I think, with icons that they're not meant to stir the emotions so much as to be a prayer aid. And so I think some people think, well, I don't really like icons. That they don't look like a picture. Well, that's the point. That's the point. <laughs> and, and yes, a beautiful icon where will stir you and the emotions. You will notice the beauty if it's well written and correctly written. Um, and, then, and then we just don't stop there. And that's what happens with regular devotional art, which, which is what we need in our faith to be able to connect with that particular saint or that holy person. But the icon is designed to start you with beauty, but then take you all the way through to God, and then from there into an infinite realm to aid your prayer life and to expand your prayer life. Mm. That's beautiful. And if someone has not experienced praying with an icon, um, they should definitely visit your store. There's a lot of icons there to choose to to pray with. Um, But we are going to be running up against a break. So we are visiting today with iconographer Magdalene. She is a master iconographer. She has a store down on Bluff Street. I've driven by it so many times and was curious before I went in. Mm -hmm. Um, It's right before you get to the intersection of West 3rd, and it's called Byzantium. And the word, the letters T-E-A are kind of different. So you think, oh, there's something about T's in there, too. There's T in there. So that's who we're visiting with now. And so... um, uh, we are so glad that she's here, and we're going to come back in the next two segments and visit some more with, with um, iconographer Magdalene. You're listening to KCRD-FM. We're back. You're listening to The Chatter. Magdalene Grace Dean is in the house. What a show, Colleen. Uh, You know, it's fascinating to me. I love learning about our Catholic faith, especially the parts that are not, um, you know, that we're not used to. I forgot about our sponsor. Oh, our sponsor's Hot Works. Yes. Over on Holiday Drive. With two L's. Holiday with two L's. Yes. I forgot. Thank you for our our sponsor, Hot Works. It's a good thing you held the sign up. Yeah. <laughs> so we've been visiting with iconographer Magdalene Grace Dean. I got a question. Yes. So I got a, So Magdalene, we've come to understand that icons are art, but they're different than the three-dimensional art that we're used to. It's one or two dimensions, and the artist writes icons, which implies to me that the viewer should read an icon. And I see more icons in churches now than ever before. Now, I don't know if I'm just paying more attention or if there is, in fact, more icons. And there's a variety of them. And now that we have met and you've told me that you have to read these, Tom, because they're written, I have no idea how to decipher to read a, an icon. Is, is there 
a go-to or a how-to? There actually is. Um, there are different things that we do with an icon that we don't do with a devotional piece sure. of art. The first, of them, first thing before we even um, start to read an icon is that we approach it with such a large humility, um, and we venerate it. So what we're doing here is we're usually signing the cross. Many people will will genuflect in front of an icon. Many people will bow in front of an icon. Many people will touch the icon. And probably what is the most unique thing is that um, when someone is venerating an icon, they'll actually come up to it and kiss it. Now, not very popular right now during COVID and during all mm -hmm. of the restrictions that we have for sanitary purposes. But what people are still doing now is they'll kiss their hand and then place that on the side of the icon. Because people started to create, people continue to create a relationship with an icon. Um, because it's a conduit to God, they, they show their love and respect in a very physical, visceral way. The second thing is reading the icon. Yes, we come to the icon for prayer, but we have to understand what we're seeing, what we're viewing first, and, um, and, and in doing so, it helps us leave the world and enter into this realm mm -hmm. of, of infinite grace and a closeness to God that is, is very difficult to achieve using other media. And um, so... Now, you speak about infinite grace, almost that it's, it's innate. It's part of the nature of the icon. How does the icon acquire or become that conduit of grace? Very good question. The iconographer fasts. First of all, the training for iconography is, is at least four years, and to master, it's ten years. So the iconographer lives um, a monastic lifestyle. We fast and we spend our day in prayer. And um, we also um, really live a, a life that centers around icon writing. And we stand when we're working. And, mm -hmm. we can, and as we're working, we're in prayer. Then ultimately, when the icon is done through its many, many, many layers and processes, um, then when it's complete, it then becomes blessed by a priest or a bishop. And there it becomes your conduit that can lead you to a much deeper relationship. It also contains language that is biblical, and it... it so uh, it's scriptural? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and also it moves light because it utilizes 24 karat gold, which symbolizes the light of Christ. Mm -hmm. And just to give you an idea, in our studio, in our showroom where we have the icons, many of the processes, um, the layers in geometric shapes are placed uh, up to 300 layers, and they're very transparent, so light starts to collect. 300 layers? 300 wow. layers. An icon can take anywhere between one month to six months to complete. And that's prayer time of about six hours a day. Wow. So if you think about what goes into an icon, um, then that light starts to hold. And when we turn the lights out at night, the icons continue to glow throughout the night. So they contain... They glow through the night. They glow through the night because they hold the light of, of, of mm. God. 
the light of Christ. Mm. Um, the other thing um, about an icon, um, when we approach it and to read it, in our school we have a three-point process. The countenance of the icon first catches you. It, it, it holds you. It's, it's what happens when you look into another human being into their eyes and you, you find a sense of warmth and um, acceptance. So we start with looking at the countenance of the holy person or persons depicted. From there, that should start to calm us down and to help us leave our secular life and our worries and our troubles. Secondly, we start to get curious about what we're looking at. So then we see the scribing in ancient Greek, ancient ecclesiastical Greek, that are abbreviations for the saint's name. So um, you will see a series of alphabets in Greek, mm -hmm. and you'll wonder what they are, but they're actually taken directly from the New Testament in their abbreviated form, and it will actually give you the title of the person, the holy person that you're looking at. And then ultimately, after you ascertain those two bits of information, you start to really enter into your prayer world. Then you become more curious about the vestment, the color, the position, mm -hmm. the hand position, what are they holding? Are they holding uh, an, um, uh, a Bible? Are they holding a gospel? Are they holding a crozier? Are they holding a cross? Is their hand pointed outward or inward? Um, and, and then we see the halo. So at that point, we start to become very, very curious. Um, and if it's a, a lovely icon of the Blessed Virgin Mother, who we call the Theotokos in the mm -hmm. East, which is just translates in Greek as to Mother of God, Right. we see her, her beautiful position, and she's usually holding the Christ child. So this all becomes a way of understanding and reading an icon, and once you're able to do that, you can literally stay in front of an icon for minutes to hours, because it keeps on drawing you in deeper and deeper. You start to see the folds in the clothing, the way the light moves, the way the light shines around the eyes of the saint. So for this icon to talk to you, you know, you need to know how to read it or ask of it something. In, well, in you don't sense. really need to know. You're actually, through the dynamics of the design of mm. the writing and the, and the, um, the, the composition of the icon, it actually takes you there. So it actually teaches you. Th this is a thought I have. So you earlier said that there's evidence of icons uh, in the early 100s, in the first or second generation yes. of, of the apostles. Was this artistic technique used prior to that time in other venues, not in, in religion, or, or is this... D was this invented by uh, Christian artists? I'm going to say that there were some aspects that were there, let's say, before Christ. And certainly the, the classical uh, Romans and sure. Greeks um, utilized some of these techniques. But if you really understand the breakdown of all the different processes, you'll see them described all throughout Scripture, especially the Psalms. And we do a lot of teaching of the Psalms. What would an example of that be? Oh, oh um, the, God stretches out the, the, the light as if it were a curtain mm -hmm. in the sky, and quite often we see on the back of an icon a red curtain hanging somewhere. Or um, uh, 
the, the, the biggest thing that we see repeated throughout Scripture, and especially in the Psalms, is the light that shines from God. Mm-hmm. The light of God's face shine upon you. We and will see this often. Is that why many, many icons have a gold background? Yes. Is not only the light of Christ, but that's everywhere. It's right? everywhere. So we have two forms of light in iconography, created light and, um, and God's infinite light. And created light is directed light, much like we have in a room. We'll have a, a candle, mm-hmm. we can have a, a lamp, and it's going to cast a, a light in one direction. But in the icon with the use of gold, and certainly with the little white marks that you see as the shine marks on the face, and certainly as the background looking gold, that is a a device, and it is a device, uh, a mechanical device in how we produce the icon to um, indicate and move God's light. And one of the most fascinating things that you'll ever see is I was able to have uh, an opportunity to photograph one of the icons of Christ, the, the Good Shepherd, yeah. which is a very ancient prototype that goes back to the earliest day while Christ was actually alive. And that's where he's standing, and there's a, a, a lamb around his <coughs> shoulders. Sure. Well, I finished the icon and photographed it and then pixelated it. And without doing any manipulation whatsoever, I was able to see colorful rays coming off of the halo, and that was captured by a camera. So this is an example of God's infinite light, and we just don't have that in devotional (laughs) art. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Colleen, you and I have talked about this, uh, but you've, you've got some favorite icons, and remind me what they are. Well, I do, and one of them is called um, the Penco, Pen, you say it, Pantocrator. Pantocrator. We have that at our, our home. It's, maybe people have seen it. It's, it's Christ standing, and his right hand is in a particular position, mm-hmm. which you can explain, and then in his other arm is held an open book of the Gospels. So if people can think of that image, if they've seen it, maybe you can explain the symbolism and how to pray and what those different things mean. Well, when we start to see the Pantocrator prototype, it is one that was uh, also one of the earliest forms of of the posture of Christ uh, that was used in the early churches. So the the posture of his hand um, is he's actually signing the the four initials of Jesus Christ in ancient Greek, which is Jesus uh, Christo. Um, and each finger is producing the Greek alphabet shape. So that sign was actually used during um, the persecution of the Christians to sign to each other um, that they were a Christian because mm. they couldn't really say it and they couldn't put marks up on the walls of, the fir- of their front door mm-hmm. to really announce that they were Christians. But if mm. that sign was given... Uh, to each other, then that was uh, that was a s- in public in the marketplace. That's right. Mm-hmm. It was a secret sign language. Um, so then uh, the Christ is holding the gospel. Sometimes it's depicted closed. Sometimes it's depicted open. There we usually see um, uh, scripture from the book of Matthew, uh, where he speaks uh, in "I am the light," mm-hmm. and so in in many many ways uh, it it. It's assuring the viewer that you are coming to the authentic Christ. Um, And then you see the halo, 
and there is a shape of the cross in the halo, and that's known as the crucifer, and that has initials on it. And those initials are, once again, ancient Greek, Greek um, initials for the I am who I am. So this icon um, is really a powerful icon. It's sitting here in the studio, and you cannot help but to keep on looking at it. And it's the most simple two-dimensional um, depiction because we have other devotional uh, art around us as well, but this one keeps on calling mm. us back yes. because of that posture <clears throat> and of that conveyance of that countenance. And that countenance is really conveying um, two different natures of Christ, the merciful Christ and the judgment um, aspect that, that Christ gives. So you end up having um, both welcoming you as you're praying in front of that icon. So Christ is someone that you can go to to ask uh, for, for mercy. But in asking for mercy, you know that you will be accepted and loved because that's his other nature uh, as well. And, and yet he's also um, beckoning us to do our best and, um, because he's, he is our judge. So um, it, it's very easy to fall in line when you're standing in front of the icon of the Pantocrator. I am uh, writing one right now in my studio, and it is in a public place in the gallery. Anybody who comes down can look at it. It literally stops people. I've had people actually drop on their knees and start crying. Just people who've come in to buy tea, and all of a sudden they're in front of this icon. What size is that one? It's very large. <laughs> it's about four feet by four feet. Wow. wow. Now, is that a commission piece? Is it going somewhere? It is a commission and not a commission, and that's hard to explain, but it's a, a work that I uh, was really called to start doing um, in hopes that we can uh, grow our understanding of the Eastern Catholic Church, and hopefully at some point it will go into a mission church in mm. our area. Mm, wow, that would be something. Let's do it. Wow, Let's do it. Great. Speaking of commissions, did you and I have a conversation in the last year that you were... Uh, uh, commissioned to do something for the shrine? Yes, the shrine of uh, the Virgin of Guadalupe in, uh, is it La, La, Cross, La Cross? right up the road. Yes, just right up the road. Um, a lovely family came to me and noticed that there wasn't an icon as I have described to you with the gold and the natural earth pigments and on a wooden panel at the shrine, and why not? And I explained that the Virgin of Guadalupe, um, the, her, the tilma, the original devotional art, comes from the 1500s. And right. There isn't an icon uh, written of her yet, um, because it would have to be written in the same language that the ancient icons um, would follow. So I'm in the process. I'm being commissioned right now to put the image of a devotional Virgin of Guadalupe um, and to convert any theological shapes that need to be addressed and to put it into iconographic form so that it can be gifted to the shrine and used in the um, narthex area where uh, people can come in and actually venerate it. So this, the way I'm listening and you're describing, this isn't simply a replication of the picture we all have known and grown to love mm -hmm. of Our Lady of Guadalupe. You're doing research and trying to understand theology yeah. to create. What what does that look like? 
Um, it's a two-month study, and I have to go to the museum of, uh, not the museum, but the, the Mexico City Church where the tilma, the original tilma actually resides, and then take all the different concepts that are in there and research them back even further. Where did those um, rays come from that surround the Virgin? What does the vestment design uh, depict? There are under, lots of books out there now that are all conjecture based on what the tilma looks like, but the tilma was designed as a, de- God designed it as a devotional piece of art to help uh, those in the cultural area uh, be able to connect with her. So therefore, it's going to have similarities to Aztec and Mayan culture mm-hmm. and any of the Native Americans from the area. But as a true working icon to bring you to the Virgin Guadalupe and then ultimately have the Virgin usher you to God, it has to contain the rest of the dynamic geometry, the perspective shifts that we have to do, some of the vestment um, designs that we have to adjust, all in keeping with her familiarity of her beautiful posture and her beautiful countenance. Um, And this will be the first one in the the, world. This will be the first one in the world that's truly canonical in the ancient tradition. And and I have to say um, that I'm finding that um, I'm having to go back as far as the Coptic ancient icons to get some of the similarities that are showing themselves in the the original tilma. Well, that thought, Magdalene, we've got to come back after... uh, the break here. Yes, we're in the middle of a fascinating conversation with iconographer Madeline Grace Dean and uh, stay tuned for the final segment of the chatter. back with one of the most interesting shows on the chatter and, and we always have great guests but we this do, is interesting but here. it's very fascinating episode 103 yes with um iconographer madeline what Grace. are you doing on november 2nd by are the you way free? right i thought we were going to lead with that opening yes so november 2nd we're having our our fall conference down at the grand river center and we're having dr ray garendi come He's the host of The Doctor Is In, which you can hear on KCRD 98.3 FM weekdays at noon. Mm-hmm. And he's a funny guy, and his topic is laughter, the sanity of the family. And someone asked me, is it going to be a funny talk? I said, I hope so, Well, you know, based he, on the title. He, he uh, is a former stand-up comedy guy. Yeah, and we had him at Martha Mayer years down. ago, and he was very funny. Yeah. He's very funny. So I hope everyone can join us. Mark your calendars Thursday, November 2nd at the Grand River Center to go listen to Dr. Ray Garendi. Come and join us. Bring all your friends. It's always a good night to get together. Bring a table. Bring a bus for a table. Yeah. <laughs> 563-231-3545. I had a thing. 231-3545. 
if you need help on the tickets. But I think people are getting I got a call today, and they uh, said I need help. And by the time I called them back, they figured it out on the website. So We have smart listeners. It's, it's going pretty well. Magdalene Grace Dean, who is the iconographer, the master iconographer down on on uh, Bluff Street. This is just north of the cathedral, just north of Third um, Street, mm-hmm. on the same side of the street as the Fourth Street elevator. But mm-hmm. if you're on the Fourth Street elevator, you've gone too far. Mm-hmm. You need to come back to Byzantium, which is where I went for some tea, and. What should have been an eight-minute tea shop ended up being an hour and a half uh, with... with uh, we went upstairs, Magdalene Grace, she took me all over, and um, I said, we're going to get you on the show someday, and uh-huh. it only took us 102 episodes to get you here. Well, and if people were at the Terry and Jesse conference um, back in the spring, um, uh, Madeline, Magdalene had a table there, mm-hmm. and she had some beautiful things, and I pointed out one of the beautiful rings to my husband and said that's a beautiful ring and he took note and when i went back to the ct went and got it for me so yeah it's just beautiful things at the and store. your hand was heavier and his wallet was lighter yes that's the way it works <laughs> so beautiful so we stuff. started talking about the uh favorite icon and um we talked long on the uh, pantocrator pantocrator yeah. Yeah. Greek? Yes. Yeah. It's Greek for Christ the Almighty. Christ the Almighty is going to be easier for me. Yes. When I think of uh, icons, I grew up downtown at St. Mary and the beautiful uh, Lady of Perpetual Help. This mm. was a very large icon. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you were mentioning the uh, San Damiano mm-hmm. uh, cross. But um, give give me a answer to the story of Our Lady of Good uh, or of Perpetual Perpetual Help because there's a big story in that icon. Well, that story is amazing and that icon actually is in every single church. Yeah. Hmm. And and growing up, we could not tell the difference if that was an icon or a devotional piece of art because it was just always included in every single church I've ever seen and visited. So it is an ancient prototype of the Virgin Mary holding uh, the infant Jesus. Um, and, and he's got the, his sandal is, mm-hmm. is drooping. Yes, it's a fantastic story. First of all, the two angels that flank the, the Virgin um, are, are symbolizing and they're holding um, the tools that were used um, against the Christ during the Passion. And um, and then the Virgin is holding one mm-hmm. hand and pointing uh, toward Jesus as the as the infant child, and that's known as the Odigetria prototype, which is um, Odigetria means guide to God, and that's once again ancient Greek, and. Um, so she's known technically, and her first name was Our Lady of the Passion. So now we have her as Our Lady of Perpetual Help, and that came around after 1000 AD. So you mean the original title of that icon was the Lady of the Passion? Yes, Our Lady of the Passion. And she's still known that way in many other countries. So um, and some call her perpetual help or goods or, or good help. Uh-huh. Um, and um, so she's known as the God, uh, holding, holding her hand in, in the direction of the way to, 
Christ is the way. Mm-hmm. The second thing is the baby Christ is holding a small scroll in one hand, which signifies the gospel, and in the other hand is making a little sign with his little two fingers, and that's the blessing or the dual nature of Christ. But the thing that's the, probably the most interesting that people don't understand about that icon is that they always come up and say, why is one shoe coming off of the baby Jesus? Mm-hmm. He's got two shoes, but one is dangling off. Well, that that proves our, the ancient quality of this icon going back to the days of Christ. And certainly mentioned in Scripture that when a bargain was made between two parties, uh, be, um, one one person would take off their shoe, the other person would take off their shoe, and they would exchange the shoe as contract or collateral until the bargain was fully made or the loan, if it were, were paid back, and then the shoes were given back to each other. So this was an original form of contract, and here we have Jesus depicted with that sandal hanging off because he has been chosen and he has agreed that he knows that he will die for us for our salvation and that's the contract that's the contract wow yeah mm. and that icon is really ornamented with a lot of gold gold in the vestment of oh, christ yeah. gold in the vestment of the virgin especially her veil and then almost always pure gold in the background mm-hmm so that's the short are the story. angels uh, michael and gabriel i had heard that is that true it is true Those are the two uh, angels that we see quite often in the Byzantine church that are also known as the deacon's doors. Um, So at the altar, you'll see... The deacon's doors? The deacon's doors. At the altar in a typical Byzantine rite church, you will see an iconostasis, and that is a wall um, separating the nave from the altar, which is behind a screen. And on the screen are a myriad of icons. And this is one of the other things that leads us to the difference of an icon versus devotional art is that icons in the Eastern Rite are used in the liturgy. And by that, I mean they're used during the Mass. Um, They are sensed and venerated and honored by the deacon who comes out with the full, large uh, censer full of incense. And we we uh, on three different occasions we venerate uh, Christ, uh, the Virgin Mary, usually the patron of the church, and then of course the two angels, Gabriel and Michael. Fascinating. And if so we don't keep asking, oh, you go first. No, I was just going to say. And so when you say the doors of the deacon, so the deacon would kind of go through the door with those icons on it. Yes, yes. Okay. They, they were the, the designated place where the deacon moved from the front of the altar to the back of the altar, whereas to the priest would be moving from the royal doors, which are the center doors. And that's always depicting the icon of the Annunciation, where you have Gabriel on one side giving the good news and the Virgin accepting on the other side. And those are known as the royal doors. Colleen, you've got a couple other favorite icons. Well, I do. Well, we went to Rome in the year 2000, and one of the places we went was Assisi. And mm-hmm. in the church of Assisi, of course, St. Francis, it was a huge icon cross known as uh, the church. It was in the church of San Damiano, and so that crucifix is known as the crucifix of San Damiano. So, And I'm sure our listeners have seen that crucifix. There's a lot of things going on in that crucifix. That's one of what I call the four popular icons that we see all the time as Catholics that we don't realize are our icons until we get close to them and we see that the 
the art is a little different. It is more two-dimensional, a little more simplified, um, and a lot more gold. And so the San Damiano Cross is, of course, associated with St. Francis. And it was written um, shortly after 1000 AD. So it qualifies as a true Byzantine icon because of the language that's depicted. And we're seeing the crucifixion of Christ. Um, and um, and then uh, we're seeing, of course, angels, and then we're seeing the Virgin. So would this cross have been done before 1054, 64, when yeah. the... Uh... Yes, it would be. And, it, and when you look at it, uh, you'll see that it's done in the same process as a Byzantine icon. Therefore, um, it's on a wooden panel. The wooden panel um, is covered, first of all, with a white coating, which signifies the white shroud or um, the white... Um, towel where the first depiction of Christ not made by hands was shown. Uh, St. Veronica is known mm. for holding this right, little towel. Right. Mm -hmm. And this same little towel is also signified when we go to Ukrainian and um, um, Ruthenian um, Byzantine Rite Catholic churches where we see that cross being draped uh, uh, on the top of an icon. Mm -hmm. And that signifies the first image of Christ not made by hands. So that cloth is actually uh, plastered, mixed with plastered on top of the wooden um, board, and then uh, the um, iconography is written in the earth pigments and then the gold. So that is one that we see all the time that we don't realize is a true icon. So that's the, the third popular icon, and the fourth mm -hmm. is? Would be the Holy Trinity. Mm -hmm. Now, in the Eastern Rite, we know that as the hospitality of Abraham. It depicts the story of Abraham um, and his wife, Sarah, um, presenting a luscious meal and dinner before these three angels that, that had oh, visited sure. them. Okay. Yes, so that, that's the biblical basis behind it. But then it became a little bit um, abbreviated by leaving out... Um, Sarah and Abraham, and then we have the three angels. And to this day, there's still lots of speculation. The three are depicting the three aspects of the Holy Trinity and who is God, who is the Son, and who is the Holy Spirit. And there are lots of theologians who still conjecture um, as to who is who. Um, we see that icon in a lot of Catholic churches, most recently in modern times, mm -hmm. where we hadn't before because that one um, it really um, speaks to us in terms of communicating what the Holy Spirit is in, in our faith. If you were to write that icon, you personally, would you, would you put Abraham and Sarah in the icon? I have written the icon, and um, it depends on what we're depicting. If we're depicting it um, just for uh, somebody to uh, pray with, I would not. But if I were using it as a festal icon to, um, to depict some of the themes and the stories of the Bible that many churches put up at different times of years, I would, I would be obliged and required to depict the full scene with, with Abraham and uh, Sarah. But now if you were to write an icon of Abraham, would you select that scene from his life or a different scene it's the only scene where he is shown in in the prototype canon 
of iconography. And that's the other thing that we really haven't spoken about yeah, yet. Yeah, what is the prototype canon? Yeah, what the, does that mean? The canon are a series of designs that have been developed through the time of Christ from his actual walk on earth to, um, to present day where um, ecumenical councils agree how the church's teachings and how the scripture is going to be depicted. So we as iconographers are not allowed to deviate from that. And that's the one thing that we teach at our school that many other iconography schools don't teach. What's that? The canon. Um, the language is a very, very specialized theological language through shapes and also text, but it's also through process and composition design. And um, that's one of the things I specialize in, is going back and uh, obtaining the blueprints, if you will, of these canonical sketches um, to be so used. So there's no individual artistic Absolutely uh, not. That gift here. You, you are following a... I have to follow a strict canon, just like we as Cath Roman Catholics um, and Eastern Catholics have to follow the canon of the church. Um, it's, there isn't a canon law book for iconography uh, per se, but as an iconographer with the ability of uh, being a professor in which I am, I am able to go back and find this in, um, in the Vatican's um, collection of manuscripts of, uh, of processes and instructions on how to depict and how to carry out the iconography process. So really, the writer, uh, the iconographer, mm -hmm. their identity is not important. Their personality does not come through. It's all meant to be directed to God. You wouldn't say, oh, that is um, Michelangelo's I icon, and that's, you know, such a Such a very, very good point, because ultimately what we aim for as an iconographer is to be anonymous. And therefore... For so there's nobody that could say, ah, Magdalene Grace Dean has done that. Well, some people can notice, especially scholars can say, oh, that was done by the, by the hand of the same iconographer. If you see a certain set of colors that were used, because the quarries where these pigments came from all came from a, a certain region and a certain location... Um, you could say that, but we, um, when we reach the level of Michael, uh, master iconography and we are blessed, we have our hand actually blessed by the bishop, and we are not to use it in any way to bring fame or, or celebrity to ourselves. You're kidding. We, say that again. Yeah, we, when we're sitting before the bishop to receive the blessing of and the vocation of iconographer, our hand is blessed not only with holy water, but by the, uh, the clergy to not use the hand for notoriety, fame, or celebrity, nor do we use it for profit. An iconographer lives simply a very, very um, basic monastic life where the charge that we have for the commissions covers our operating costs and our supplies. We don't work for any financial gain. Wow. Mm. Magdalene Grace Dean is our guest, and we're nearly out of time for the uh, third uh, segment of episode 103, but we've got to mention a couple of things here. Um, give us your address again. We are um, Catholicon Art Gallery and School, and we're located within the shop of Byzantium, and that is 333 Bluff Street, 
right here in Cable Car Square, Dubuque. And you can hear more about Byzantium on uh, our show Light of the East with Father Thomas Loya, which airs 8.30, Colleen, mm-hmm. on, Sunday, on mornings. Sunday mornings here. So uh, we were wondering what we were going to talk about today, Magdalene Grace, and um, here we are. We're out of time, so you're going to have to come back. Maybe we should get Father Loya to Great idea. come on over It here. would be my blessing. Thank you so much. Colleen, where are you going on November 2? Well, I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you. You'll be in a tux on November 2nd down at the Grand River Center, and we'll be enjoying Dr. Ray Garendi's talk on laughter, the sanity of the family. Tickets are available at kcrd-fm.org, or you can call Tom. At 563-231-3545. Leave a message. We'll get right back to you. Bring a table. Bring all your friends. It'll be a great time. Bring bring a table. Come on out and and, uh, do that. And thank you to all of the fine folks, Melissa and her team over at Hotworks on Holiday Drive here in Dubuque. And we're out of time. Okay. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory Amen. be to, to the, the Father and, and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, Spirit as, as it was in the beginning, beginning is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Tune in again next week. We love you. <laughs>